Welcome to Healthcare Perspectives, a podcast by Siemens Healthineers about medical breakthroughs with the power to improve lives everywhere. Today, why is it so important to identify and treat the early signs of dementia? When, I say when, because I'm optimistic, we have a real disease-modifying drug that really can stop up the degeneration of the brain cells. When we have that, I think so many more people will come and ask to be evaluated in order to get this treatment as early as possible. In the second of our three-part series on neurodegenerative diseases, Siemens Healthineers Director of Technology and Innovation, Lance Laddick, talks with Tammy Benzinger, Anna Björson Hansen, and Doigu Tosan. Hello, I'm Lance Laddick. In our last episode, we heard that we can mitigate the degeneration of our brain cells. One way is by making changes to our lifestyle. It's a great prospect when we consider the anticipated global rise in neurodegenerative diseases. And since very few disease-modifying therapies, or DMTs, are available to treat them, it's especially important that we have preventative measures to protect ourselves. But from what age can we start looking for the presence of these illnesses? And how early can or should clinicians begin treatment to help slow cognitive decline? Today, I speak with our guests about their research into dementia that is caused by Alzheimer's disease. Here's Siemens Healthineers Ken Maiese, Vice President of Medical and Clinical Affairs, to explain what dementia is. In the broadest terms, it means a loss of cognitive function that was first developed normally. So like, say, for the first 18 years of life or so, you were normal and your memory was, function was normal. Because you have to distinguish that from a developmental disability where the memory was not developed normal because of some brain disease and brain disorder. So you had it and then you start to lose it later in life. Perhaps the most widely known cause of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. It was first discovered in 1901 by Dr. Alois Alzheimer. Dr. Alzheimer started to figure out that if you studied the brains of people who died with dementia, you had different causes and Alzheimer's disease was this thing that he discovered. Tammy Benzinger is a neuroradiologist and professor of radiology at the Mellencrot Institute in St. Louis at Washington University. But then for almost the next hundred years, we still could only confirm that diagnosis when people had a brain biopsy or had an autopsy. Now, imaging scans can show us the presence of proteins that contribute to cognitive decline. For Alzheimer's disease, this means looking for beta amyloid and tau. These two proteins play a key role in disease-related neurodegeneration in the brain. When those proteins start to aggregate and form deposits in the brain, that's very damaging to the neurons. You have neuronal death and then you have memory loss. If it aggregates, if it clumps up in a certain way, then you have Alzheimer's disease. What we can now do with brain MRI is to start to look at patterns of brain disease to come up with a more specific diagnosis, as well as what we call molecular imaging. So we can do something called PET scans to actually identify where the brain deposits are located and what types of deposits people have. And with that, we can make really specific dementia diagnoses of a specific disease like Alzheimer's disease. 
Imaging lets us see the buildup of these proteins over many years. We can see them starting to build up 20 years before they develop any symptoms. That's a really scary thing, but it's also a really powerful tool. Why is it so important to detect the presence of amyloid and tau early on in Alzheimer's development? Once you have cell death, that's a much more difficult problem to solve. So we don't know how to fix the brain once those neurons have died. And what we're hopeful for is to be able to identify very early on those people who might be starting to be at risk. So who are starting to develop these protein aggregates that might be able to be eligible to go onto a, a drug trial, for example. But if we can give that medication earlier, when we know that they're at risk and prevent the damage from building up, then I think we really will be seeing something that could be a, a cure or a prevention for Alzheimer disease. It wasn't that long ago that that's where we were with heart disease and cholesterol. We need to be focusing on really going early and figuring this out. And that's exactly what we're doing with Diane. Tammy Benzinger is Imaging Core Director for Diane, the dominantly inherited Alzheimer network. This network investigates ways to help identify the early onset of a rare form of Alzheimer's that typically causes memory loss in people between the ages of 30 and 50. Why research this form of Alzheimer's disease? What is the significance? If you're a carrier of this disease, if you have this mutation, then it's absolutely certain that you will develop Alzheimer's disease in your lifetime as well. Right now, that means you will develop dementia. It has such a high predictability that we actually know. So if my mother had developed Alzheimer's disease at age 55 and I were age 51, then that would say I had four years until the onset of dementia. What's really interesting about this disease is that everything about the disease that we see really parallels what happens in older people who get the disease. The only difference is that they're much younger. So people with the autosomal dominant form of Alzheimer's disease will typically develop Alzheimer's in their 40s or in their 50s instead of in their 60s or 70s or 80s. Diane gives Tammy Benzinger's team access to a much younger sample of people for Alzheimer's research. If we identify a family that has this mutation, the family member with the symptoms will undergo genetic testing to confirm that it actually is autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease. And then after that, any of their children who are over age 18 and are interested are eligible to join the study, whether they have the mutation or they don't have the mutation. The study has two parts. So there's the what we call the observational study, and then there's the trials unit. The two studies are linked and matched at every level. So if you're 20 years old, we may not have a drug that you're eligible for right now, but you can enroll in the study and we can start getting the PET scans and the MRI scans and all the clinical assessments to build up this database. And then when those drugs become available for that group, we can right away switch them over into those drugs as they become available. Through Diane, Tammy carries out three types of PET imaging studies. We do PET studies to look at the amyloid deposits. We do PET studies to look at the tau deposits. And then we do a metabolic PET study. So there's something called FDG. 
and that's a labeled glucose molecule. Your brain loves glucose. And so normally the brain has glucose uptake everywhere. And as you start to get Alzheimer's dementia, as the brain starts to fail, the places that it uses the glucose start to lower. So we could use those three PET scans to identify where's the amyloid depositing, where's the tau depositing, and how does that impact the areas that have a metabolic failure? Then we also do MRI studies. In part, these studies look at the hippocampus, a part of the brain that is especially important for studying memory function. We're using the strong magnet and radio frequency waves to develop pictures of the brain based on the water molecules. And using that, we can do what we call a structural MRI. So we can identify the parts of the brain that are normally healthy. And in particular, the hippocampus is the memory center that we look at. And we like to see how that starts to atrophy or shrivel up as people develop Alzheimer's disease. Apart from structural changes, MRI can also detect functional changes. This helps us to understand how Alzheimer's disease affects the workings of the brain as well as its physical structure. So we're looking at the way water diffusion works in the brain. We can actually follow the water molecules and if they're moving in a certain orientation or direction, we can use that to model the white matter pathways and that lets us build up models of the microstructure. So we get to bring it together to understand normal, healthy brain function, and then the different ways the disease can impact the function of the brain as it develops. Studies like those Tammy Benzinger carries out in her network help us find reliable and objective measures. These measures can track not only how a patient's disease progresses over time, but also how a patient responds to available treatments. The treatments that we currently have for Alzheimer's merely mitigate symptoms. Pharmaceutical research is now focusing on the development of DMTs that could prevent, delay onset, or slow the progression of disease. These candidate DMTs show strong therapeutic potential, but they still need to be validated in clinical trials. But cognition in early onset patient deteriorates at different rates. So it's not always easy to gauge how effective these candidate drugs might be at an early stage of the disease. To measure a change over 18 months, it's not that easy in this phase of the disease. The deterioration is very flat. Dr. Anne Borisen Hansen is Director of Clinical Trials at the Department for Aging at the Kalinsky University Hospital. For a patient coming further on in the severity of, of Alzheimer's, the slope of the curve is steeper. On top of this, the artificial environment of clinical trials means that we don't always get the real-life data we need, data that helps us truly understand the complexities of the disease. Clinical trials operate with certain parameters so that researchers can make accurate assumptions. It's not really a natural setting those patients we include in the clinical trials because there are so many exclusion criteria. They have less comorbidity and the general Alzheimer population. We have to be very vigilant on the fact that the new medications have not been tested on people with lots of comorbidity. I hope that we will have some um, kind of biomarker so we easily could see if the patient is responding to the treatment or not because it's quite burdensome for the patient to get those infusions. And it's also a very, very high cost for the 
the healthcare system. Anna Borison Hansen is convinced that a lot of people will make use of an Alzheimer's screening once an effective disease-modifying drug becomes available. When, I say when, because I'm optimistic, we have a real disease-modifying drug that really can stop up the degeneration of the brain cells. When we have that, I think so many more people will come and ask to be tested, to be evaluated in order to get this treatment in as early as possible. We still need to get to the point where clinicians can offer accurate screenings and where researchers can make long-term predictions about disease progression. To achieve this, we need to identify and measure more disease-specific biomarkers. Biomarkers are indicators that give us information about a patient's medical state or condition. If they show evidence of disease in a patient, then they can also help us to diagnose and monitor that disease over time. Biomarkers could be measurable substances in the blood or cerebral spinal fluid, like the beta amyloid protein. The kinds of measurements they take might be features in a radiology image, such as the presence of a brain lesion. And these biomarkers can also help us define the causes of symptoms and even indicate how a patient's brain might deteriorate over the years. So, the more biomarkers we have, the more complete a picture we can get of a patient's biology. It's this range of data that Anna Borison Hansen's team must collect to determine if a patient is suitable for a clinical trial. We try to match what we can see from the medical records with the inclusion criteria for the specific trial. And then, of course, after consenting to participate in the trial, there is the screening phase where they have to undergo a lot of cognitive tests and also blood tests and, and MRI and ECG, etc., to make sure that, that they fulfill all the inclusion criteria and uh, don't have any exclusion criteria. MRI and PET scans, cerebral spinal fluid, cognitive test results, psychological assessments, and blood results. As all of this information can be collected at various points in time over the course of disease, a clinical trial can take many months or even years to complete. And yet, these measures are vital, not only for developing new therapies, but also for informing care pathways in the clinic. We need to measure a wide range of biomarkers because our biology is complex. That's why you're unlikely to get an accurate diagnosis for your illness if you only tell your doctor about one symptom you're experiencing. Unfortunately, it's not always going to be the case that a patient will only have one medical issue. Patients also frequently suffer from other conditions. We call these comorbidities. These little lesions in the brain that people don't really know they have, but they're building up and we know that they're associated with high blood pressure, diabetes, etc. We don't find people with dementia from Alzheimer's disease who don't have these findings in the brain. What we thought for a long, long time is that they were sort of these co-pathologies that are each making the other one worse somehow and together lead to the dementia. Well, this is one of the things that the Diane study has really flipped around for us. We started to see people in their 30s who had these little spots on the brain. When you're 30, that, that that's not a normal thing. We're not, we don't expect to see it. And in fact, if we do see it, what it looks like to us is what we call demyelinating disease, something like multiple sclerosis. And then we, we realized once we'd collected enough data, no, this is not MS. This is only happening in the mutation carriers. 
How can we distinguish the cause of symptoms if an Alzheimer's patient is suffering from multiple comorbidities that may elicit similar effects? One way is water diffusion MRI and modeling. So we think that there are going to be different properties within that tissue, but it's one of these big unresolved things, and we don't know how to track it down from imaging, and there's also no ground truth for it at autopsy either. I do think that's going to be really important, huge opportunity for research. We learned in our last episode that wearables could help us add real-time data to complement biomarker information that's collected at the clinic. This information might make it easier to assess the relevance of comorbidities in the development of Alzheimer's disease. With the help of such technologies, patients can generate data themselves by tracking the number of steps they take in a day or by recording their speech patterns. They can even produce useful data while asleep. Something that's exploded a lot during the COVID pandemic is developing new ways to interact with our study participants and do engagement and assessments remotely. The smartphone is, has become pretty ubiquitous for all of our studies right now. But in terms of wearable apps, that's something that we have funding to look at that with different devices in different ways, from simple things like smart watches to some more elaborate devices that people have to wear in bed at night, all the way up to some really detailed sleep studies. The dominantly inherited Alzheimer network uses such sleep studies actually measuring the spinal fluid proteins continuously over 24 or 48 hours to look at how they vary when you're asleep, when you're awake, and during sleep cycles, etc. It turns out that we don't produce the amyloid protein at the same rate all the time. It's highest in the morning, and we think that you're probably producing it during the day when you're thinking and you're active, and then clearing it out of your system at night. So at night, it gets washed out of the brain into the spinal fluid. And so if you check your spinal fluid first thing in the morning, it's going to be the highest that it is all day. The data we get from all these biomarkers help us to create diagnosis pathways, where one result from a blood test can, for instance, initiate the process for an imaging test. Since we know that there are different things that happen in the disease at different times along different timelines, my suspicion is that we'll, we'll probably be entering an era where you get a blood test and if you're starting to have measurable amyloid in your blood, that's probably going to trigger additional testing. So let's, let's take a look at your brain MRI. Let's take a look at your brain perfusion. Let's see if you're developing these white matter lesions or microhemorrhages. Having a smart decision tree that's guided by what each test along the way says in order to determine exactly where you are in a risk profile and a trajectory. And then look at lifestyle modifications, absolutely, as well as which treatments are gonna work best for this particular type of the disease. I also wanted to know Tammy Benzinger's thoughts on what the future of detecting and monitoring Alzheimer's might look like to her. I'm, of course, a, like a big fan of imaging, imaging technology, and so I'm getting more and more excited about our smaller and more portable MRI scanners. I would love to have my own semi-trailer with an MRI and a PET scanner on it, like miniaturized. Maybe I could get them in a, in a camper van and someday go around and do that. Easy access is a key factor when thinking about alternative routes to find and track neurodegenerative diseases in patients. The buzz right now are these blood tests. 
While they don't have necessarily as much quantitative accuracy right now as getting the, the PET scan, they're so much more accessible. I think that's going to redesign how we think about the studies. We don't want these to be just biomarkers used in clinical trials or just biomarkers used in research environment where we have the technology provided in our centers. This is Doigu Tosun. Doigu is associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco in the Department of Radiology and Biomedical Imaging. We want these biomarkers to be widely available, scalable, cost-effective, so they can take place in a clinical practice. Fluid biomarkers will be a big game changer. They're less invasive, not expensive, and quite scalable because we do blood tests for many, many different diseases. Blood is everywhere. It definitely supports the brain hugely. Brain is probably the most energy-demanding organ we have. We are heavily looking at how the amyloid protein levels are changing in blood, how the top protein levels are changing in the blood. On top of that, we're also looking at how neurodegeneration or neuronal function-related proteins are reflected in the blood plasma and also how neuroinflammation or systemic inflammation markers of uh, blood are changing and how those might be related and we, we can deploy many of these plasma biomarkers in various clinical and research settings. Of course, finding and treating patients with neurodegenerative disease is extremely time sensitive. As Temi Benzinger said at the beginning of the program, once neurons die, those neurons are lost forever. But acquiring a range of data takes time, so it's important that multiple biomarkers do actually help us generate a more complete picture of cognitive loss and that we aren't simply collecting the same information twice. One example of a complementary use of biomarkers would be the measurement of neurofilament proteins, or NFLs, alongside amyloid and tau. By measuring these proteins, clinicians can access additional information about the brain's deterioration. Neurofilaments are throughout the body. They're in the skin. The neurofilaments are actually like little pipes that become phosphorylated and very strong and are used in the axons of a neuron. So a neuron has a cell body and a long axon that communicates with other nerves. And so that's where these neurofilaments are and they're used to form the structure of that neuron. When an axon or neuron gets injured, they leak out. So one could say, well, geez, that can happen all the time. That's true. But then we look at specific diseases and we find that they are leaking out more often in a certain disease, in a certain time of that disease that suggests that disease might be getting worse. And then can we combine that if we start treating that disease, will we decrease the neurofilament release? The more precise a clinician can be in monitoring both at-risk and current patient responses to treatment, the better. By testing for NFLs, amyloid, and tau, and then combining those results, we can increase the diagnostic precision so critical to clinical decision-making. When these three are combined, they become additive. So it becomes much more sensitive to predict if someone is developing Alzheimer's disease and how are they progressing. No biomarker is perfect, but it's in the right setting of the right patients. If we had better maybe detection methods, maybe better biomarkers, that could prevent or reduce the time from, say, 24 months to 12 months when patients start to get really recognized that they're having a problem. From imaging to lab, Biomarkers need to show clinicians results that they can act upon. 
This could mean aiding with a differential diagnosis or determining the optimal care pathway for the patient in question. Many of these biomarkers are used in multiple domains. The dementia portion is really Alzheimer-associated amyloid and tau accumulation in their brain, in addition to their movement disorder symptoms. And uh, similarly, it's the vascular dementia cases. We know many of these are cerebrovascular because of the cerebrovascular health and largely inflammation, but we still see tau accumulation in those individuals. They have that additive burden on, on their clinical and countermeasures. So it's very important to have that crosstalk between disciplines, crosstalk between diagnoses. At the end of the day, even from clinical perspective, none of these are pure diagnoses. There's always a primary versus a secondary, and it's important to understand how biomarkers are changing as well. Nevertheless, collecting and interpreting this range of biomarkers requires a variety of skill sets and tools. These developments will put added pressure on clinicians and clinics. The demand from the healthcare system to evaluate and to diagnose those would be enormous. And then in the next step, to monitor and to distribute and administer all the treatment for those people, it will be a challenge. In the other end, we will save a lot of people from getting severe dementia and we will save a lot of money for all the nursing homes. Next time on Healthcare Perspectives, how might technology help us identify the progression of a neurodegenerative disease in an individual patient? And that's where I think artificial intelligence can enter the network biology picture and start to help us find the 20 needles in the 20 uh, haystacks, so to speak. You've been listening to Healthcare Perspectives, a podcast by Siemens Health and Years. We pioneer breakthroughs in healthcare for everyone, everywhere. Subscribe to us and always get the latest episode in your podcast feed or visit siemens-healthandears.com slash podcast for more. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Health and Years.